Keith really wants to come on at some point in the next couple of weeks and do a segment about number one teams and who's getting number one votes. Keith is all fired up about uh, who's getting number one votes at this point. I think when the originator of the Around the Nation podcast wants to come in and do a segment, he calls his own shot, right? Football fans, it's now time for the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. Here are your hosts, Matt Coleman. You have a very forceful handshake, Mr. Coleman. And Greg Thomas. Thank you, Greg. That was interesting, too. It's the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast, your weekly podcast about the largest division of college football. And we welcome you to podcast number 312, season 16, episode 12, the podcast for September 26th of 2022. I'm Pat Coleman, the guy who runs D3Football.com and gets stopped by Johnny fans on the sidelines at games and asked to make St. John's number one in the top 25. I am I'm Greg Thomas. I am the Around the Nation columnist at D3Football.com. I tried to make St. John's the number one team in the country, but that fell apart on me on Saturday. Pat, we are maybe a little over a quarter of the way through the regular season. Week four, another week of great games with top-ranked teams. Another week with results that are going to shake up the top 25 a little bit more. Absolutely. They have so far, and they may continue to do so. Of course, a week in which number 20, um, 20 with an asterisk, maybe Bethel defeated number two, St. John's. And uh, of course, a, a week in which number five, Mary Harden-Baylor just obliterated Harden-Simmons. But Greg, man, as I was going through the rest of the games, and this was even like in the middle of the week, as I am putting together the list of games that I want our scoreboard guy to focus on, it's like, uh, you know, the when the YX's not playing, for example, because uh, basically the entire YX more or less had the week off. We only had 91 games instead of our customary 112 to 115. I was really thankful for those two really big games because, you know, the rest of the stuff didn't really jump out on paper. We've got a lot of stuff that we pulled out of this week to highlight for you. So don't go away. But on paper, it was like, eh, I guess the next thing I was going to get excited about was Heidelberg and John Carroll. Yes, yeah, so that game produced a result that you know, matters for rankings purposes and maybe matters for region four purposes. Yeah. You know, I mean, th- this season every week, I mean, we've had a couple of really big weeks. You've had a couple of weeks where we're thinking, you know, maybe we're going to go through the motions a little bit, but every week has produced games and results that are really noteworthy. Talking about this game at Bethel, you could not be at both, but you could watch both, which was awesome. So I could be at Bethel the entire afternoon and then get down, get sit on my couch and watch Harden Simmons with a pretty good broadcast on the big screen on my, uh, on my big screen TV with the ASC Roku app. That was pretty awesome. I'm just really joining 2016 about right now. So I apologize to all y'all out there. We'll talk significantly about this uh, Bethel St. John's game. Our fast five coming up in a few minutes. will be with Jaron Rosti, Jaron Rosti. We've talked about him, I think on just about every podcast so far this season, including the one in the preseason podcast with coach Steve Johnson, that is podcast number 307. Talked about him then and basically every podcast that since, because in week one against Pacific Lutheran, the guy, it turned out severely dislocated his elbow on the fourth play of the season, missed the second week against Platteville. And then last week, I'm sure we talked about him, you know, whether he was going to be able to play against St. John's and he did. He takes us through that whole journey. 
and through that game, which was uh, an impressive one, a fun one, a game in which Bethel won 28-24. If that's a score that sounds familiar, I've been to a couple of really great 28-24 to games this season. No scoregami there for sure. No, not even a personal scoregami. St. John starts this game, Greg, going 19 plays down the field, nine minutes and 20 seconds. They finish with a touchdown. They're running the ball. They're running the ball in Bethel, which is not you know, necessarily something you expect. They're having success doing it. Henry Trost is getting to the edge a little bit. They're running some speed option. They're running them up the middle. Um, Aaron Severson misses on a couple of deep balls, and that's something that comes back later. Then Bethel comes down and answers quickly, and then there's like nothing for the rest of the first half until St. John's ends the half with a field goal. And then like the second half, just completely different. There's a possession change pretty much every five minutes in the second half. Yeah, you expect a little bit of that stalemate situation in a game between conference rivals, two really good teams, a lot of familiarity. So I don't know that we were going to get a big high-scoring game, even though I think St. John's is capable, and I think Bethel with Jaron Rosti is capable of putting up a lot of points. But yeah, you get a really good conference rival matchup between a couple of teams that, I mean, really, this was a number two versus number 20-ish game, but I mean, Bethel's ranking really includes that loss to Platteville, which, you know, has, there are conditions around that game. I think, you know, had Platteville been able to wrap up Jaron Rosti's arm like a Gordita and put him out there against Platteville, maybe you get a different result there. And we're talking about Bethel being in the top five or possibly receiving number one votes this week. Whoa. I mean, not impossible, right? Not impossible, I guess. I had not really taken this hypothetical farther than if Bethel had not lost to Platteville, they probably would have come in at number like eight or something, maybe number nine this week. I had not pondered the possibility that an undefeated Bethel beating St. John's, that someone might rank Bethel number one in the country. Then again, someone ranked Trinity, someone ranked Harden-Simmons that last week. So of those two, just, uh, you know, quick aside one of them was from a veteran voter been voting on this poll probably since day one and another one was from a voter who was brand new this year so it's just like runs the gamut of you know what to expect this season but had Bethel won that game against Platteville they would kind of be on the top of that chain of events where Bethel beat St. John's who beat UWW beat UMHB and you know I think it would have been reasonable to think about Bethel as number one given all of the other results and things that have happened. Um, who knows? I think maybe, I don't know that they would have risen all the way to number one in the poll, but not impossible to think that Bethel would have been thrown two or three number one votes. Yeah. In that hypothetical chain, right? They are North central is not in the chain because they haven't played any of those teams. Mount union's not in the chain because they haven't played any of those teams that Bethel could very well have been number three in this, in this hypothetical. Whoa. All right. I am. I'm going to try to extricate myself from the mind blowing that I just got there. And let's talk about the poll a little bit more specifically the way things went down. So we talk about this unbreakable chain of events, a chain of events that cannot be solved, right? The one in which all of these uh, games that tie together, right? It's Whitewater beating Mary Harden Baylor, who beat Harden Simmons, who beat Platteville. And then you've got, uh, you know, St. John's beating Whitewater, but you got Bethel beating St. John's and you have Platteville losing to Harden Simmons, but you also have Platteville beating Bethel. This is the sort of thing that you just basically can't 
you can't resolve this kind of conundrum, right? And so I was talking about myself as a top 25 voter for a second. I consider Bethel against Platteville to be a different team than Bethel against St. John's, right? They are, they are just two different animals altogether with Rosty healthy. That's just a completely different thing. And that's one of the things that helps me delineate those things. Also, people could reasonably think about Whitewater now firing on all cylinders. Mary Harden Baylor, you could say, now firing on all cylinders. Is Mary Harden Baylor the same team they were in week two? Is Whitewater the same team they were in week one? These are questions that each voter gets the opportunity to handle on his or her own. Yeah, I'm a voter who likes to use head-to-head results to kind of guide where uh, teams should be positioned relative to one another, but we are reaching the point in the season where you get a whole pile of results, a confluence of results that makes it impossible to sort things directly by head-to-head, and I think you have to look at some context in those results and think about Bethel's result against Platteville and how the Platteville win sort of plays into all of it, but they didn't beat a fully staffed Bethel team. And I think you also, for me, look at the UMHB Whitewater result. How many, you know, I, I keep coming back to that result and how many times I think you could line up that situation with UMHB six inches away from a game-winning touchdown and three tries to get it and them not getting it. I mean, it's it's a minuscule thing. And that's not to say that UWW's uh, pedigree and talent and skill didn't have a lot to do with the way that that game turned out. But that is also a little bit of an, an anomalous result. And I did actually flip UMHB and Whitewater on my ballot this week. I'm one of those guys who's voting for Mount Union. I think I mentioned it a couple of podcasts ago. In this conversation that I was having with Keith earlier today, the one that we allude to in the cold open, is like if Mount Union had even played just like Washington and Jefferson or something like that, I think they'd probably be number one right now. They're only 12 points behind North Central. They've got five number one votes already. Just any, I don't want to say anybody other than Defiance, but somebody, you know, in the top 50 like WJ is a representative, reasonable Division three opponent with some pedigree, I think Mount Union might be number one right now. It's very possible. And we've talked on the podcast several times about how good we think Mount Union is going to be and also how I don't think we're going to really get to see how Mount, how good Mount Union is until around Thanksgiving. We'll talk a little bit more about Harden-Simmons and Mary Harden-Baylor coming up in just a moment, and we'll talk with Frank Rossi, who was on site in Abilene, Texas for that. We'll hear from a couple of Mary Harden Baylor players. But before we do that, we should really talk about some of the people who help make this podcast and help make D3Sports.com happen. And those are our subscribers using Patreon. Patreon is a service that people use to support people who create things, content creators, uh, art creators, musicians, that sort of thing. Anything where someone might benefit or a group or an organization might benefit from a monthly donation to help the cause. For us, it's the cause of covering Division Three sports and people who donate anywhere from $3 to $50 a month on Patreon. Help D3Sports.com plan, budget, get through the off-season, all the sorts of things, and frankly, help us get through September as well. 
That's right. Pat our Patreon subscribers help fuel all of that D3Sports.com family of sites. But during football season, we see that support manifested in the regular cycle of coverage our readers see throughout each and every week. Features columns around the nation, on-site coverage on Saturdays, the live scoreboard on game days, all made possible by our Patreon subscribers. If you enjoy D3Football.com and all of the coverage the site provides, consider joining our group of Patreon subscribers or support the site with a one-time donation. If you're already a Patreon subscriber, thank you. You can continue to support D3Football.com by spreading the word to your fellow fans at your next home game. And to become a Patreon supporter or a supporter, to become a supporter of D3Sports.com via Patreon, go to patreon.com slash D3Sports, and that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com. Or if you want to support us with a one-time gift, you can do that by going to D3Sports.com slash help. Enough about the offense. The defense won us this game. Uh, 14, 14 points in a row right there at the end of the half. I mean, that's... That's unbelievable, and you do that in big football games, you win those football games. So I'm so proud of our young defense and our young linebacking crew. They caught a lot of a lot of smoke versus Whitewater, and they were, you know, during film was not good for them. But, man, they came back this game, and they played their butts off. And I couldn't be more proud for those three, uh, Omari, Duran, and uh, Johnny, Johnny Smith. Smith wow, yep. I mean, they balled out. 34 points later, we stand here now, 50 to 20, but you guys responsible for the one-two punch here. I believe yours was first. Yes, sir. What did you see out there? Tell me, uh, you know, that moment, and uh, you know, did you believe you had such a wide open run to the end zone? Oh uh, yeah, I kind of knew that I had a wide open run, but I don't know. I just kind of seeing that he was holding the ball loose, got it out, and scooped the score. What was uh, the reaction on the sidelines uh, when that happened for you? Uh, just excited. That's it. That's it. <laughs> Coming in there, you heard Kyle King. That's the quarterback of Mary Harden Baylor. He was talking about his team's defense. And then you heard Johnny Smith Ryder with the uh, first of those two scoop and scores on Saturday night in the win against Harden Simmons. And to talk about that game between Mary Harden Baylor and Harden Simmons, we brought in Frank Rossi of In the Huddle. Frank, you went all the way to Abilene. Now you're on uh, the show with us, and we definitely appreciate you uh, coming on to chat about this. It's been a long weekend, guys, but uh, an exciting one and uh, well worth going down to experience uh, the Abilene side of this rivalry because uh, a year earlier I saw the uh, Belton version of it and uh, definitely exciting in both uh, areas, both games, both versions of it and under the lights in both uh, cases this go around. So great to see the showcase that they're putting out for this. I don't think I've been in Abilene now for at least 15 years, maybe more. Uh, you talked about being tired. That's not easy travel, right? Flew in three and a half hours late on Friday night, got there at 3 a.m., uh, hour and a half for the rental car, went to the hotel, and I was supposed to do something else. I was like, I got to sleep because if I don't sleep, I'm not going to have energy for this game. Thank God I did because I needed energy for this game in that first half especially. Talk about the energy level between the first half and the second half. Those of us who are watching from home, like Greg and I are, what I hear is huge energy in the stands in the first half. And then I wasn't there to see how many people came back after halftime, but it was a deflating second quarter if you're a Harden Simmons fan. Let's put it that way. The student section, as you know, is right off the end zone, uh, basically to the left of the press box side. When I'm on that side, you can hear, make sure it's over 18 year olds uh, that hear it, some of the chants in the background uh, from my camera uh, angle there. The first touchdown that got scored. Uh, it felt like deja vu, it, a strong start by Harden Simmons. And then suddenly, you know, we get into shootout 
outmoded a little bit, which wasn't necessarily prevalent in the first half last year because uh, UMHB went down, what, 21 points uh, pretty early on in that game. But uh, we went to shootout mode at some point in that second quarter and still energy, but you could tell there was anxiety starting to come across that crowd uh, and the sidelines. And then uh, I have never been a part of something like what happened at around the four-minute mark left in the second quarter. Greg, you said, I think, in our Slack chat, I was saying it to myself on the sideline, what is happening? Because I just, I've never seen something like it with the kickoff return to the four, the touchdown, the scoop and score, the scoop and score. And suddenly we're going from 20 to 16 Harden-Simmons to 36 to 20 UMHB. And any win that was in any sales on that sideline of Harden-Simmons, their fan base, et cetera, it was gone, completely gone. Yeah, Frank, and I think I saw, I mean, in that game, it really felt like up until that point, uh, really up until the K.J. Miller return, it really felt like Harden-Simmons had the, had the better run of play there. They had uh, two big, long touchdown passes to Keevy Evans. They had the crew defense really on their heels a little bit. And then, you know, you get the big return from K.J. Miller, and then you get consecutive scoops and scores UMHB scores 20 points in a flash. And just like that, it's, it's, it's lights out. Yeah. I mean, Kiwi Evans, uh, what a uh, dynamic wide receiver he is. Galen Glenn uh, had more of an arm than I thought he would have. And based on his stats the previous week, I wasn't sure what we would see from him. We'd see more running, see more passing or what, but uh, great job, great overall game plan early on realistically, guys, this didn't come down to Harden Simmons not having the horses uh, to fight in this one. I, it came down to mistakes. It really came down to the two errors in that second quarter that completely upended them. Call it three, because you can't let a kickoff return go to the four-yard line. So that's a special team's error there. Then the two scoop and scores, I, I mean, those are errors. I, and for as much as we want to point to great defensive effort, it is. It's also an error on the other side of the ball. And you erase what was really a great start of the first half again by that team. And I think then at that point, you say to yourself, here we go again. They've got us again. I, I really think that there is a mental scenario playing in this game now because of the streak that Mary Harden-Baylor is on against this team of Harden-Simmons. Frank? Appreciate your time tonight, uh, jumping into the podcast and uh, giving us the uh, eyewitness view from Abilene, Texas on this. Thank you, guys. Always a pleasure to join you. Fast Five with Jaron Rosti, the winning quarterback for Bethel against St. John's on Saturday, wearing number one first off instead of his customary number nine. Tell us a little bit about that. See you all, man. See you all, man. Yeah, just all week met. one, uh, fourth play of the game, actually, against Pacific Lutheran. Dislocated elbow, just trying to stay up, fighting for extra yards. So I was in the hospital, and I ended up cutting my jersey off to try to reset that elbow. So switch back to number one. Obviously missed last week game against Platteville, or two weeks ago. Had the bye, used it to recover, and we came out and got a good result today. Sure did. And tell me about recovery. How does it feel so far? Yeah, elbow held up really well today. I got hit, tackled, ran out of the pocket, and was able to use my legs a little bit. Obviously, a big part of my game is is running the football, but that'll come with more with more reps and more games and, and just more healing. 6'4", 220, 230, something like that. Big quarterback at the D3 level. And I can understand why you want to run because that makes that makes it really difficult for opposing defenses to bring it down. 
Yeah, hundred percent. And obviously, when I came in, when I came to Bethel, I was about six four, two forty five, uh, a little bigger. And then COVID hit, and I, I shed some of the weight, just a little more athletic, a little more agile. And and I think it's shown over the last few years, not just with with rushing yards because it, that's just a statistic, but being able to evade pressure, get out of the pocket, and find someone downfield. That's that's something I've noticed is a big difference with just. 20 less pounds to run around with. So, yeah, definitely a big quarterback for the D3 level. And uh, But I'm excited. I just found a great team in Bethel to, to transfer to, and it's been a great four years. One play like that is like your guys' first drive in the third quarter. You step out, you evade uh, tacklers, run out to the right, and then Kidder's available down there for you at about the 10-yard line. You make a great throw to get it to him, and then he evades a couple of tacklers on the way to the end zone. Yeah, obviously not, not designed for him. Just got a little pressure, stepped up, scrambled. Kidder, is, he's always open. <laughs> Even if he's covered, he's always open. That's what I say. Just giving him a chance. Uh, and he did a good job. We've been practicing scramble drill all the time, especially just for how much I like to get out of the pocket. And he was able to spin around and, and take a high angle, come down to the ball, and then he did the rest, like you said, and, and put it in the end zone. You mentioned missed a game. Well, missed almost all of the PLU game, too. Uh, then took the bye week. Did At what point did you know that you were going to be available for the St. John's game today? Uh, Tuesday afternoon, I'd say. Um, just like giving more reps and practice and being able to throw the brace came. Uh, I actually, it was a funny story. I was out disc golfing with a couple teammates and I took a disc right, right to the elbow. And uh, for, for a minute or two, I was like, it was Aaron Ellingson's disc. He had a touchdown today too. Uh, just moving my elbow is like, you know what? This actually isn't that bad. Maybe I, maybe I'm, I'm think I'm ready to go. So that, that gave me some confidence just taking a shot. But yeah, throughout the week, training staff did a fantastic job getting me ready, making sure I had everything I needed to do to, to be prepared for this game, and it, it worked out well. I think what we heard, too, was that you were waiting at the hospital for hours, multiple hours, before you even got seen on game day when you got the injury initially? Yeah, it probably happened around 1.15, went down to the U of M, and, and I didn't get that thing reset until after the game. It was around 5.15, so I was sitting in the, the waiting room full pads, a um, lot of pain, just just sitting there watching the game on my phone, and and obviously the guys stepped up, and we had a great response in that game without me. Um, took care of PLU. Obviously the stumble last week with Platteville, but you know Platteville's a good team, and and obviously went on the road and lost to Harden Simmons, but Harden Simmons is a good team too. Obviously we we all know that. And I'm excited to see that game tonight against Mary Harden Baylor, but it was it was a good bounce back for us, and this was the answer we were looking for uh, moving forward into the rest of the season. St. John's comes out, the first drive of the game, 19 plays, has the ball for almost 10 minutes. Um, tell us a little bit about what it's like standing there on the sidelines waiting to finally get in and get a, get into the game. Yeah, I, I always love deferring. Uh, I always tell our guys to defer because our defense is so good. Usually they get a good stop and we can come onto the field with a little momentum. Um, obviously St. John's came out, a lot of speed option to, to start, and they were getting out on the getting their running back out on the edge. Tross had a fantastic game as well. Um, but it's kind of agonizing. You're sitting there, especially with the elbow, haven't played in a couple of weeks, wanted to get out there, just wanted to get one, get hit once, you know, just be in the pocket, get one throw off and get into the rhythm of the game. And they go 19 plays, 10 minutes, right? And it's, it's first quarter is almost done. So uh, it's, it's tough to sit there as an offensive player and watch, but at the same time, um, once we got out there, we were able to execute on some of our stuff that we wanted to, and, and the outcome of the game uh, was good for us. And in the first half, it seemed like your, the running part of your game kind of kept under wraps I assume probably intentionally, but then in the second half, things a little different. Take us through that. Yeah, obviously, we, we were trying to get away for some specific run, uh, quarterback run game. Obviously, when I scramble and get out, that's something that I always do. And coaches told me, just get down, slide, get out of bounds. And we saw that in the second half. Um, I was able to slide once, and they, they had a personal foul, which might have been a little soft. But um, got down and slide, and they called it. 
uh, did a few things with the read option as well that I that I was able to keep on. I got a big big run there too. But as, as the weeks progress and I start to get more more comfortable with with how the elbow's feeling, the the running's definitely going to come back and be more of a part of what we do offensively. Rosty, 19-29 for 321 yards and three touchdowns in this game. Really, his first game action this season, he did not throw a pass before he left in week one. Uh, this was really impressive stuff from one of the top players in the division. In most conferences, we would look at this win and look at Bethel's remaining competition in their conference and figure that the Royals are about 85% of the way into the postseason. But in the Mayak's divisional format, Bethel is going to have to, unless things get really weird, have to go beat St. John's again in week 11 and do it in Collegeville. So, you know, the work for Rosti is far from over uh, for Rosti and the Royals. Yeah, for sure. Lately at some of these big MIAC games, I've had the pleasure of sitting next to Pat Royce. He's a Minneapolis Star Tribune columnist in some of these press boxes. And, you know, aside from like the amusement of having people call out for Pat and then getting two answers, uh, I just love that the state's biggest newspaper has one of its most prominent columnists who loves to go cover MIAC games. Royce in particular has been pretty brutal about the the uh, conference's football format. The word that he used in the paper on Sunday morning was goofy. But I think if you uh, if you cornered him, he'd probably use even sharper language. Aside from that, I just really enjoyed this game for classic feel, uh, you know, fans ringing around the entire edge of the field, uh, three, four people deep, every uh, spot of the stands packed. And that includes an expanded visitors bleachers that uh, if you were listening to podcast 307, you heard Steve Johnson talk about. It rained at the end of the game. So Steve Johnson is holding his kind of uh, end of game speech with his team as the rain is coming down and then i saw the, the and this totally aside not the whole classic feel but they had one of the uh, electronic down markers right at one point during like the third quarter of the game it switched from displaying the down to displaying what i was pretty sure was low bat which is you know a low battery message first time for everything uh for me anyway and just a a fun game to be at yeah who's got a who's got a charger cord for that thing I think that's a USB D, right? I think thing is that thing's got to be pretty big, right? Game ball. Game ball. Game balls. Game balls. Game balls. It's time for game balls, and my game ball is going to Mary Harden Baylor linebacker Johnny Smith Ryder. The sophomore had ten tackles, two forced fumbles, and of course, one of them was a scoop and score in Mary Harden Baylor's fifty to twenty win against Harden Simmons. You heard a clip from him earlier, and you can hear more of that interview and others on uh, D3FB Huddle on Twitter. Thanks again to Frank Rossi for getting us that audio from Abilene. My game ball is going to go to running back Spencer McMillian of the Coast Guard Academy. McMillian set new Coast Guard single-game records with 43 carries and 285 rushing yards. McMillian rushed for five touchdowns on the day in Coast Guard's 66-28 win over Anna Maria. For his record-setting workload and output and a bit of, su- a, bit of a surprising result, McMillian gets my game ball. That's not my stat. Also, not going to be my stat. Not my stat. That may be the most incredible stat. My stat of the week is tackles for loss. I'm not going to lie. One of the best parts of tackles for loss is that there's no subjectivity to it. You tackle a guy behind the line of scrimmage, bam, the software automatically allots this guy a tackle for loss. You know, sacks, you've got subjectivity. Is a quarterback chased out of the pocket? Yeah, maybe that's a sack. Could it have been a designed runner a draw? Maybe that's not a sack. Or maybe if, you know, 
you're the home team and your guy is getting the sack. Your guy's on defense. Maybe you give that guy a sack. Anyway, that's why I love tackles for loss. And Christopher Newport racked up a couple of weeks worth of tackles for loss on Saturday in front of 6,000 plus fans at Town Bank Stadium, defeating Catholic 34 to 7, recording 11 tackles for loss in the process. One of my favorite parts of tackles for loss, too, is uh, when two players share them, just like you can share a sack, just like you can have assisted tackles, you can share a tackle for loss. So this is 11 tackles for loss spread among 13 players. Non-starters got tackles for loss in this game, and that's my stat of the week. It's time to talk interceptions. While the much-anticipated Aurora-Rockford showdown didn't quite materialize on Saturday, Aurora's secondary did some pretty spectacular things. The Spartans intercepted Rockford quarterback Jalen Ray six times. That's not my stat. All in the first half, which is also not my stat. Connor Nordmeyer ran back one of those six interceptions on Saturday, 100 yards for a coast-to-coast pick six. Last week, Marcellus Romius also returned an interception for the Spartans, 100 yards for a touchdown. And if that's not wild enough, Aurora 100-yard pick six Rockford in last year's meeting when Sean Reyna returned an interception the length of the field. Aurora's proclivity for 100-yard pick sixes is pretty amazing and is my stat of the week. My multiple times a year reminder that in college, you can't have a interception return or a kickoff return or a punt return of more than 100 yards. That is an NFL thing only. I'm a real wild one. Who's getting it done in the one? How about Stevenson? Let's start with that. Stevenson went five and six last season, and they broke back onto the scene in week two of this year with a 35-21 win against in-state rival Salisbury. This week, the Mustangs improved to 4-0, defeating Widener 30-14. to This is a great start for Stevenson, and we will know more when Stevenson hosts Delaware Valley this upcoming Saturday. Salve Regina is getting it done in the one this week by shocking the Rowan Profs with 21 fourth-quarter points for a second straight year. The Seahawks didn't have quite as far to come back this year. They trailed 35-10 to at one point last season, uh, but they were down 17-0 to in the first half of this one before Jake Stack's three-yard run capped a 15-play, 82-yard drive to give the Seahawks the win with 21 seconds to go. Salve Regina has weathered the first month of the season with a 3-1 record without star running back Joey Mariello. We don't know what his status is going forward, but the Seahawks appear to be ready for Commonwealth Coast Conference play in either case. Last year, that comeback for Salve against Rowan was so impressive that we had uh, Kevin Gilmartin on the podcast for our Fast Five interview. That is podcast number 287, if you want to go back into the feed and hear that one. Greg, who's well-to-do in the two? Region 2 or Division 2, I'm going with the 4-0 Utica Pioneers, who are well-to-do. The Pioneers got knocked around pretty good by Union to the tune of 24-7 at halftime. The Dutchman piled up over 300 yards of offense and over 200 rushing yards in that first half. And then the Pioneers adjusted. Utica did not allow a first down in the second half and just 15 yards of offense to Union in their 31 to 24 comeback win in Schenectady. Yep. Utica, it sounds like, is going to be pursuing NCAA Division II membership. Uh, They had a conversation this past week when they talked about uh, the three sports that they are adding. They did not commit to moving divisions, but the president of the university was pretty, uh, pretty clear about looking for division one hockey. And then to be in division one hockey, you have to join NCAA division two or go all the way to NCAA division one with the rest of your sports. We'll be keeping an eye on that. 
well-to-do in the two this past weekend. Also was St. John Fisher, well-to-do with just three points, defeating RPI 3-0 as Kyle Farewell kicked a 26-yard field goal on the Cardinals' first possession of the game, and the bullpen held up. That was all Fisher needed for the three-zip win, basically the minimum score you could win a game by, although this week we did have a game-winning safety. So many safeties this season, it seems. Cole Simmons blocked a Kane punt in the fourth quarter, allowing Merchant Marine to beat Kane 9-7. Punt goes out the back of the end zone for a safety. I know Merchant Marine isn't in the two, but Kane is, so I'm going with that here as well. I'm also thinking the two Cortica Jug teams are doing pretty well right now. We're talking about Cortland and Ithaca. Of course, they continue to win. We're waiting to hear, maybe as soon as this upcoming week, that the November 12th battle for the Jug in the Bronx We'll, we'll workshop that. We'll get a better title for it. Anyway, that, that's going to be another sellout. And I know that the goal has been to once again set the record for Division Three single game attendance. This game sold 45,161 tickets at MetLife Stadium in East Rutherford, New Jersey back in 2019. Hopefully, if they do sell out and break this record, more of those people actually come through the turnstiles and watch the game. A lot of those 45,000 fans disguised as empty seats and a lot of tailgaters out in the parking lot for the entire afternoon back in 2019 what do you see in the three what do you see in the three what i see is the uh, old dominion athletic conference action getting underway this week after the entire conference had that buy in week four bridgewater randolph macon shenandoah each started the season three and oh and ferrum is oh and three but of course everyone starts fresh at oh and oh in conference play and i'm look, looking forward to some of that odaction odaction Adam Turd coined this term. I don't think it quite stacks up with the uh, Division One term of Maction. You know, that Mac, the other Mac. Could that someone be Mac the night? Whatever, that Mac. Maybe we'll see some of that. And I just had to name check Adam Turr because it's been a little while. I'm also, I'm glad you read uh, Around the Nation this week. What I see in the three are a pair of conferences that may have been settled on Saturday with UMHB's dispatching of chief ASC rival Hardin-Simmons and Huntington's 34-21 to defeat of Bellhaven. Both of these teams essentially need to lose twice in the last six games, all against teams that they will be heavily favored to beat, to be dislodged from those automatic bids. We can't say they're in pool A just yet, but the crew and the Hawks uh, should pack some swimwear if you're picking up what I'm laying down. Oh, Greg, who's going to war in the four? That's what the four by four is for, son. That's what the four by four is for. At the MIAA is finally going to go to war in the four. After laying waste to non-conference opponents to the tune of a 25-3 and three record, Teams from the Mitten turn their attention to each other. Undefeated's Trine and Alma play this Saturday, and Adrian at Hope should also be informative. Uh, this should be one of the better conference races to follow over the last seven weeks of the season. Yeah, there are definitely going to be some warring factions in the MIAA for sure. We got some questions this week. It's not going to be one of the ones that we address in our mailbag section coming up later, but people are now talking about because of this 25 and three record, now they're talking about two MIAA teams getting into the playoffs. And, you know, I think this may be just a good time to remind people it's not just, you know, the winning percentage of the conference and non-conference play. We talked about it last week that uh, a number of these wins are against teams. I mean, basically, maybe all of these wins are against teams that are not going to be regionally ranked, if I'm mentally remembering correctly. 
That is probably correct. Unless Rose Holman gets really hot and maybe sneaks in at the very end. The thing, I mean, the thing with the, with region four is that after Mount union, there's not a lot of, you know, national strength there. So with the OAC having dropped a couple of games here and there that we didn't maybe expect, you know, there may be, maybe some room for an extra HCAC team or an extra MIA team in the, in the bottom of those rankings. That's true. And someone can sneak into the bottom of the rankings and completely change things as we saw happen last year. Of course, there's also the possibility that a bunch of these MIAA teams hand each other extra losses and eliminate themselves from pool C consideration that way. Also going to war in the four. How about DePauw? A tight battle in week one for the Tigers against Rose Holman, where DePauw scored the final two touchdowns to win 17-14. And since then, actually, nobody has even scored against the Tigers. They've beaten Anderson 55-zip, Hiram 44-0, Worcester 59-0. I'm running out of ways to say zero. I should channel my soccer fanness, I guess. Task gets a little tougher in the next three games now for DePauw when they travel to Denison, host Wittenberg, and go to Ohio Wesleyan. DePaul entered our top 25 this week, just barely, with the fewest points ever for a top 25 team. The Tigers got 22 points in our poll, which is less than one point per ballot. One voter who shared his opinion with me, DePaul is simply doing exactly what already ranked Randolph Macon and Albion are doing. And here I'll paraphrase and say that they're kicking the tar out of bad teams. Uh, DePaul isn't on my ballot. That spot on my ballot is going to George Fox. But DePaul was on 10 ballots, 23rd on two of them and 24th on eight. And that's enough to get them in the poll. Who is trying to survive in the five? Mumbo number five. <laughs> trying to survive in the five. North Park's punt and kick return teams did everything they could to keep the Vikings in the game. But it wasn't enough as the Vikings fell 23 to 21 down at Milliken. Up 7-0 in the second quarter. Milliken punts, and the ball is about to come to rest on about the North Park 10-yard line with literally seven people in big blue uniforms within a yard or so of the ball. But nobody's downed this punt yet, and instead, Juan Nieves gets a nice little bounce, and he takes off running, and, well, this is what it sounded like on the Milliken broadcast. That's a beaut. That's going to hit down at the 7. Boy, every punt has taken a backwards bounce from both teams today, and that one rolled back to the 10. It's going to be picked up. Picked up, return out across the 20, 25, 30, across the 40, and he might go the distance. Milliken fell asleep on the punt return, and it's going to be a punt return for a touchdown of about 85 yards. It's actually 90 yards, not 85, and a touchdown to tie the game. Milliken scores touchdowns in the second and third quarter to retake the lead, but after the second of those two scores, North Park's A.J. Harris takes the ensuing kickoff back 89 yards for a touchdown. Not enough to overcome the Big Blue, but North Park's return teams kept them in the game. And a little hat tip to Greg Sager on uh, D3Boards.com for alerting me to that uh, particularly interesting and fun highlight. I did not see that clip. I, I hope they were doing the, the fan thing where they're fanning the ball around and then the player comes in and scoops it up and runs away with it. I have one more thing. You, you hear it in the clip, but there's this Milliken fan who's just way too close to the crowd, Mike, going, oh, no, no. Got a crease. Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, no. God. Oh, my gosh. No. Come on. No, no. The Luther Norse are trying to survive in the five. The Norse came into Saturday's game on a 15-game losing streak and oh so nearly snapped it against Buena Vista. 
Despite a record-setting day for sophomore quarterback Bo Cornwell, Buena Vista scored a 66-yard touchdown with just one minute and 11 seconds left to play to grab the 52-49 the to 49 win. That streak for the Norse now extends to 16 games, but with winless Simpson on deck, maybe next week is the week that this streak uh, gets put to bed. I can hear Damara, our assistant producer, nodding her head in the background there. She's a Luther grad. I was pretty surprised to see Luther hanging in that game, including leading 21-19 at the half. Joe Trochet is a new coach there as of this season, and there's a lot of rebuilding to do after the last administration won just two out of the last 31 games, but maybe this uh, program is off on the right foot. Six Greg, who's in a bit of fix in the six? And I don't know if we're stretching these metaphors or these rhymes too far, but let's give this one a shot. I am going to play with the format a little bit and say that Linfield fans may get their fix in the six, a fix for home field advantage, that is, with attrition among the other top teams in the region. If Linfield can get through the Northwest Conference unscathed, Wildcats are in a pretty good position to be the top-ranked team in Region 6 and almost certainly a top-four overall seed in the postseason. Undefeated lacrosse results pending, of course. Including for lacrosse coming up as soon as this week. In a bit of a fix in the six for me has to be Redlands. Yeah, I really feel like Dr. Seuss is going to write this thing into a into a children's book if I keep going. Anyway, Frank Rossi was adamant in quick hits this week that Redlands was not going to start off 0-4. And I looked at that and I'm going, mm, I'm not so sure. Um, good news is, I guess there's plenty for them to fix. Clearly, offensive line play has been a struggle as Claremont Mudscripts broke through for five sacks and 11 tackles for loss in beating Redlands in this non-conference game. No matter what, Jim Good and company will have to do some work to not have Redlands' worst season since 1987. The worst the Bulldogs ever did under former coach Mike Maynard is go four and five. Redlands has a bye week and then smudge pot coming up against Cal Lutheran to the start of Skyak play Skyak wide open um, 0 and 4 Redlands absolutely could still win that conference but they do got to fix the offensive line for sure before we go to the mailbag talk about some of the news from this week we mentioned briefly about Utica but also Hilbert uh, announcing that it is going to be joining the Empire 8 as an affiliate program in that conference just for football that will be not next fall but the fall of 2024 Here's the reason why I tie those two together, not just because they're in the same conference, but if Utica leaves, if Utica leaves Division Three, leaves the Empire Eight, then there's just going to be three actual Empire Eight schools that have football, and they would be reliant on those four uh, affiliate programs, which are Cortland and Brockport and Morrisville and then Hilbert to get to their seven. You can't do that. You see, you have to have four of your own actual members sponsoring the sport, and then you can have affiliates to get up to seven, or I guess by that point, it will be six. Another discussion for another year. I mean, basically, Empire 8 has to either, maybe they could convince Hilbert to join for all sports. That's definitely a possibility. And the Empire 8 has so many other members that could add football between now and 2024 or 2025, maybe. I don't even know if they get a grace period for this or not, but you know, you've got Nazareth, right? You've got Sage, you've got Elmira, you've got Houghton. Uh, we are taxing my basketball brain right now. Uh, I've, I've left off somebody else. I'm sure that is a possibility for adding football. And, you know, again, 
making the Empire 8 a viable automatic bid in, again, two plus years after whenever Utica leaves. Your categories have become tiresome. You've got mail. We put out the bat signal. You send us your mailbag items. And we got this one from Mike Schultz at Mikey underscore Schultz, S-H-O-U-L-T-Z. I spell these things out so that you can go on Twitter and look for it themselves. And we are not just making these people up and making up these tweets. He asks, are we ranking the best teams? I'm using the all caps or the best resumes. We all know if Platteville or Stout line it up against Albion, DePaul, Huntington, they're beating them by 7 to 21 points. While their records aren't as good, they're better teams. And if matched up, that would be proven. He's reached his 280 characters and we're moving on. There's more. I assume voters know this yet still vote for the 4-0 and teams versus a better team that is a middle conference finisher. Some of these teams receiving votes, Lake Forest, W&J, Endicott, Mount St. Joe's, Stout would have a heyday with all those schools by multiple scores. I love this question. Uh, I think Keith would have a field day with this too. First off, just from a copy editing uh, perspective. Also, I don't think you can say we all know, because if we all knew, then we wouldn't even be having this conversation. Clearly not everyone agrees. I'm going to start with Huntington. Uh, Huntington went toe-to-toe with Linfield in week one. The jury is obviously certainly way out on Linfield. They're two games into a new quarterback, but that's a highly ranked team that is generally believed to be good. And, you know, half a segment ago, Greg just uh, said they were in the driver's seat for a, a top seed. And at Huntington, I said, but went toe to toe with them. And then they beat Bellhaven, who was the third place team last year in the ASC. Whoa, we could get into a whole separate tangent about that. And maybe we will. Albion did beat Eau Claire this week. And DePauw, well, like I said, they literally have 22 votes. Everyone else he mentions has even fewer than 20 votes. Endicott and Mount St. Joe literally have one vote apiece. I do think, you know, we recognize the quality of the, of the WIAC. They've been the top ranked team in our conference rankings for a long time now. That is not something that's going to change this year. You go ahead and check back soon-ish for our new conference rankings and see who's ranked 2 through 27. But the WIAC is not immune to results that fly in the face of the idea that in Division Three there is the WIAC and there is everybody else. St. Norbert beat Stevens Point this year. Platteville got just wiped out by Harden-Simmons, and that's a game that I think we would have expected to be competitive given the rankings at the time. So maybe you know, an indicator that there was some overreaction to Platteville's win over a rostyless Bethel team. And, you know, let's be honest, there's a premium on winning. At some point, you are what your record is. And I think we can agree that all of the Yaks live somewhere within D3's top 100 or maybe even the top 75, but they aren't all among the top 25. There are other good teams that are that that exist outside of Wisconsin. Yeah. So could UW Stout have a vote in the poll? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. I don't know that we learned that, though, by them getting shut out by Warburg. And we definitely don't learn that from them beating Crown 66 to six. And Stout did have a vote after they were shut out by Warburg. Somebody was still still voting for Stout after a shutout loss to Warburg uh, at a time where we were, you know, that was early on. We weren't sure how good Warburg was going to be. But I think with our panel of voters also, you get a really good cross-section of all of the different ways that people can digest this information and produce a ballot. Some of our voters may emphasize win-loss records over quality of opponents. Some may swing too far the other way and maybe ignore results entirely. 
I'm picking the very extremes here to, to make a point. And I don't see all of the ballots, but the top 25 is an aggregation of many different ways to view the landscape. And the result, I think, tends to be uh, pretty darn accurate when we start looking at results in the postseason. One of the things to keep in mind, if you're looking at our poll and then you're looking at the uh, coaches poll, the AFCA top 25, you know, there are a couple of things at play here. Someone may get a vote in the AFCA top 25 that doesn't get a vote in our poll. There are 47 voters in the AFCA top 25, nearly twice as many voters as we have. That means there's nearly twice as many votes. That means that someone may well get a vote at the bottom of that poll. You might have six WIAC teams get votes in that poll. You might have, you know, different teams get ranked in that poll that get ranked in ours. Bethel was not ranked in the AFCA top 25 this past week coming into that game in which they went ahead and beat St. John's. So just keep in mind, they are two different voter panels. They're vastly different sizes. And I know that our voters get more information from us than the coaches in the coaches poll get from uh, from who, the people who manage that poll. I have been told that by people who vote in both polls, that they're very happy to get like the strength of schedule information and the week by week results that we are just able to pull out of a database and send to people. By the way, so Mike Schultz, a senior defensive back at UWO Claire last season. And to answer the root of the question, are we ranking the best teams or the best resumes? Yes, both. Looking ahead to week five, and it's time for games to watch. Greg, what's your game to watch? So many good games to watch in week five, but I am going to spotlight the Little Brass Bell game where Wheaton will make the short trip over to Naperville to face top-ranked North Central. The Cardinals have had their way with their first three opponents and have the nation's number one offense through week four. They're gaining just over 626 yards of offense per game. This game is going to feature two of the best running backs in the nation. North Central's Ethan Greenfield has put in light work so far this year. He's only needed to carry the ball 48 times through the first three games, so he'll be fresh. Wheaton's Giovanni Weeks has been a bit busier. He carried 37 times on Saturday against Augustana. The X factor in this game might be Wheaton quarterback Will Bowers. This will be Bowers' first experience in the Little Brass Bell game, but he's been very good in his three starts for Wheaton this season, and his ability to make plays might be the key to Wheaton pulling off an upset in Naperville. Great game for sure, and I'm glad that this game is in week five instead of, say, week three, right? Another great one this week, number four, UW-Whitewater at number nine, UW-Lacrosse. It's not homecoming for lacrosse, but it is homecoming for Whitewater quarterback Evan Lewandowski, who started his career there and has uh, started for at quarterback for the Eagles as a sophomore. You heard a little from him. He's now the starting quarterback for the Warhawks. You heard from him in podcast 310. What a way to kick off the WIAC schedule, right? Elsewhere in the conference this week, you've got Stout hosting its I-94 rival Eau Claire. Oshkosh hosts Platteville and River Falls gets Stevens Point. Otherwise, this week, keep an eye on Ithaca at Hobart. Morrisville at Cortland, DelVal at Stevenson, Westminster at Pennsylvania at Carnegie Mellon, Bethel at Gustavus, Ursinus at Susquehanna, Loris at Wartburg, Barry at Birmingham Southern. And then you've also got like Rowan at Christopher Newport. You got Wabash at Wittenberg, Huntington at Maryville. Like I said earlier in this podcast, I wasn't sure that week four had a lot of depth of great games. Week five definitely does. Time for On the Spot. And Greg, it's your turn to put me on the spot first. All right, this week, Pat, going first. So far, you mentioned earlier in this podcast that DePaul has only given up seven points this season. This week, Pat, I want you 
to tell me at what point in the game DePaul is going to give up more points than they've given up all season. Against uh, They are at Denison this week. More points than they have all season. So not just seven. And I'm not going to assume for these sorts of purposes that Denison's going to go for two on their first touchdown. So let's presume that Denison has to score twice. Denison, as you know, and probably many others know, scored 45 this past weekend against Wabash. And they reached their second score with 745 left in the first half. Took a little while for that to happen. So many of these things are dependent on who gets the ball first, right? You remember looking probably at the Carnegie Mellon Teal score, and it was only 14-0 at the half. Mount Union only led Muskingum 7-0 at the end of the first quarter, right? Sometimes if you decide to uh, take the ball first, Mount Union only has one possession in the first quarter, something like that. I could see this being something like this. I'm going to say that Denison surpasses the seven points that DePaul has allowed all year at about the same point in the game, let's say with 745 left in the second quarter. Very, very astute assessment. And you're also right about Dennison uh, going for two early on in the game. Definitely not Coach Jack Hatem style. He's more of a uh, more of a classicist when it comes to going for two and kicking field goals in short yardage situations and stuff like that. So good assessment on your part there. Watch what will happen is they'll return the opening kickoff for a touchdown and then on the first play for DePaul, there will be a bad snap out the back of the end zone or something like that. And it will be nine to nothing with like 14-10 left in the first quarter. Time to put you on the spot, Greg. There are 13 teams that are either 4-0 and 3-0, but have no votes whatsoever from our top 25 panel. How many of them will be unbeaten when week five's dust settles? What what a great question. And I have uh, just jotted down who these 13 teams are for you and for the listening audience. They are Alma, Augsburg, Benedictine, Bridgewater, Carlton, Chicago, Denison, Morrisville State, Olivet, Plymouth State, Ripon, Shenandoah, and Trine. And really, that's there's three pronunciation 101 schools in there for those fun people who just heard me say Alma and thought that was strange or heard me say Benedictine and thought that was strange. That is how you pronounce those schools. We will pause for station identification while Greg ponders who these teams are playing this week. Exactly. Okay. So right off the bat, we know we're not going to be 13 and 13 because we have some of these, at least two of these teams are playing each other. Alma is playing Trine. And I like, I might have been in a lean Alma position here before this weekend, but uh, a shutout victory over center for Trine. Trine really, from that second half of the Rose Holman game on, has been lights out. So I'm going to say Trine defeats Alma. So Alma's not going to make it to another week undefeated. We will go with Augsburg over St. Olaf. Benedictine at home. I like Tyler Jarnigan to beat St. Norbert there. Hampton Sydney at Bridgewater. I'm going to go, I'm going to go against Bridgewater here. And I'm going to say that Hampton Sydney gets Bridgewater. Bridgewater's competition level so far this season, very light for Bridgewater. Hampton Sydney, they've been tested a little bit. So I think Hampton Sydney wins that game. Carlton versus McAllister in the book of knowledge. Yep. McAllister's got a dynamite quarterback right now, but I'm going to go with Carlton at home. Chicago over Knox. I'm going to go with, ooh, Denison versus DePaul. That is 
That's a really strong game. I'm going to pick DePaul to beat Denison, although that's going to be a really, that's a tough game to go into Granville and win when Denison's hot. But DePaul has just been very, very good. They will get scored on though. Morrisville State, their undefeated run will end at Cortland. All of that is on a bye. I'm going to take Plymouth State to drop their first game of the season at Framingham. Rippon will win against Illinois College. They're going to get Ron Ernst up to 4-0. And I will take Shenandoah at home against Ferrum. So if I count this up, I count eight of those 13 teams being unbeaten when the dust settles in week five. How did we do last week? All right. Last week, I asked Pat to pick two Animal Kingdom upsets, and he delivered on both. The Morrisville State Mustangs had no problem toppling the Buffalo State Bengals, and the Adrian Bulldogs beat the Finlandia Lions. Tough week out there for Genus Panthera. And I asked you in a game we called Two Utes. Did you say Utes? Okay, fine, Two Utes. To pick the two schools that were playing each other who's uh, started with the letter U, you picked Union over Utica. That was sadly not correct, sadly for many, many people. You correctly picked uh, games involving the two schools that uh, begin with M, Mount Union over Muskingum. You correctly picked CNU over Catholic University. And I didn't mark down CUW over Concordia, Chicago, but I'm assuming that's what you picked because that's what you should pick. Concordia, Wisconsin, yes. All right, three out of four. Last weekend, quick hits. Uh, Logan, Riley, Zayas, and I each correctly picked Heidelberg to lose to John Carroll. This is picking in a top 25 team to get upset. Greg and Logan also looked at Albion, but Albion won in a close game at UW-Eau Claire. Ryan picked Susquehanna, who had no problems with Dickinson. And Frank picked none, which I'm going to say is basically never the right answer, even though I have done that myself. Greg asked us to pick 0-3 teams to get a win. Greg, Pat, and Riley each picked Maryville and Alfred, uh, but Albright and Redlands both moved to 0-4, spoiling picks for Ryan, Frank, and Logan. I just say this out loud. I just outed you, Greg. Do people even know that you're the one who creates the questions for Quick Hits every week? I mean, my name is on the byline in Quick Hits. I don't know if people read the punchy intros on those or they just go straight to the boxes. But yeah, I do I do come up with the the questions. People comment on the qu- boxes, which is nice. That's a lot of good uh, engagement on our quick hits picks this year. And I think also having them out at like 9 a.m. instead of noon is is super helpful in that regard. Yeah, it helps when I get those out early in the week for everybody to ponder. And it helps when everybody gets them back in on time also. It does. <laughs> I also asked the panel this week to find teams with double-digit turnarounds, teams that lost by 10 points last week to win by 10 or more points this week. I was wrong with Southwestern as the Pirates won by just five. Chapman, Springfield, and Williams, just barely, were winners for Pat Ryan and Frank. Logan's Buena Vista pick got thwarted by Luther, as we mentioned earlier, and Riley's pick of Texas Lutheran was on the wrong side of the win column altogether. And in our game picks, everybody but Frank correctly picked the winner, UMHB. The most outstanding player nod will probably go to Ryan and Riley, who predicted a big day for Johnny Smith Ryder, who got a game ball. I think in a stag bowl style, most outstanding player vote, it probably would have gone to either Johnny Smith Ryder or Durant Hill, who had the other scoop and score for the crew. I don't know, man. To make it a truly stag bowl style, most outstanding player vote, you basically would only give it to an offensive player, right? 
those MOPs never go to anybody on defense. Last year, right? Maybe. Micah Hackett. And he was the first defensive player since, I believe, a Mount Union player, I think, in the 2017. Yeah. I'm just going to go back through starting in 2000, which is the first time a uh, most outstanding player was awarded. And we have had 21 Stag Bowls since then. Lusant Minette in 2011 for UW-Whitewater. Nick Brish and Micah Hackett are the only defensive guys in all of those years. So I kind of stand by my assessment, although I did not use precise language. The copy editing team would ding me on that. And this was Around the Nation podcast number 312, released on September 26, 2022. Thanks for listening and keep an eye out for our coverage throughout this week. You can support production of this podcast and the D3Sports.com family of websites in general by visiting patreon.com slash D3Sports. But if you can't afford to support us financially, you can help us out by telling a friend, a classmate, fellow alumnus, like Greg says, the guys at the tailgate, tell them about the show. You can rate and review us in the various places where people rate and review podcasts, you know, like on Stitcher and Spotify and Apple Podcasts and all of those other places. You can reach us to talk more about Division Three football on Twitter using the D3FB hashtag. I'm at D3Football. Greg is at Wally Wabash. We have a message board devoted to Division Three sports. Did you know? Join the conversation by registering to post at d3boards.com. Also, you can follow d3football.com on Facebook. The executive producer of the Around the Nation podcast is Pat Coleman. Production assistance provided by Dave McHugh and Damara O'Malley. Audio from Frank Rossi and In the Huddle in the course of this podcast as well. Our theme music is Power 2 by DJ Mentos, and we use more of his tracks. You can find them on djmentos.com as well as on Spotify. Thanks to Greg Thomas, my co-host, and thanks to podcast co-founder Keith McMillan. Greg, I know you called him the originator back at the top. I didn't, you didn't know that down here at the bottom of the podcast, I was just going to change it to podcast co-founder. Seems like a totally fair title adjustment. And again, I think when, when Keith wants to jump in for a segment, it's the door is always open. So I went through every top 25 this week to find out who had the fewest votes as a, a number 25 team. We mentioned that Monmouth and Center both got 27 votes in the number 25 spot once upon a time. DePaw last year had 29 votes in that uh, spot. It seems like there's a consensus right now that there are 23 top 25 teams. <laughs> and then you've got Huntington at 37 points and you've got DePaw at 22. But we, we don't do d3football.com top 23. You got to grind over those last two. Let me know when you're done in the kitchen, please. Let me know when you're done in the kitchen. Recording. And Pat, don't edit out a whole bunch so that you can be right. <laughs>